production and distribution of City Club Forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. fun. All right. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, July 21st, and I'm Jesse Hill, Associate Dean for Research and Faculty Development and Judge Ben C. Green, Professor at Case Western Reserve University School of Law and moderator for today's conversation. Today we are joined by Michael Waldman, President and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Last June, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 case that protected Americans' access to abortion. And although it was the most startling development of the 2021-2022 Supreme Court term, it was by no means the court's only important ruling. In his new book, The Supermajority, how the Supreme Court Divided America, Michael Waldman dives into the court's previous term from Roe to the authority of the Environmental Protection Agency to the loosening of gun restrictions. Today we will hear more about the long-term effects these divisions will have on policy and court cases throughout the United States. Waldman is the president and CEO of the Brennan Center of, uh, for Justice at NYU School of Law, which is a nonpartisan law and policy institute. From 1995 to 1999, he served as President Bill Clinton's director of speech writing. In 2021, he served on President Joe Biden's Supreme Court Commission. And the supermajority is his third book. If you have a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330. 541-5794. That's 330-571-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Michael Waldman. Well, so this book um, focuses on really three blockbuster decisions from the, the prior, the 2021-22 Supreme Court term. Um, and they were all decided right at the very end of the term. That was Bruin, Dobbs, and um, West Virginia v. EPA. Um, but it's also a much broader kind of historical look at the Supreme Court and its role in, in American politics, um, really going back to the nation's founding. Um, so can you say a little bit about why you wrote this book and what you're hoping your readers will uh, take away from it. Uh, thank you. And first of all, thank you to everybody for being here. It's so great to be here at the Cleveland City Club. Uh, I've known about this institution and its roots in the progressive era and uh, the, the goal of bringing thought and values to policy and community. It's great to be with you. And it's great to be with you as well, Professor. Um, I, I started writing the book because we, we knew, of course, that this was going to be a big term. This was the first full year term 
of the six-vote, very conservative supermajority of Supreme Court justices who had taken control of that institution. And as, as was described, in the end, it was an explosive term. Uh, the Bruin case, which was by far the most sweeping ruling on the Second Amendment ever made by the Supreme Court, saying, in effect, that contemporary public safety concerns could not be considered when deciding whether a gun law is constitutional, only history and tradition. Then the next day, the Dobbs case, which, as you know, overturned Roe v. Wade, the constitutionally recognized protection for women's reproductive rights on the books for half a century, but also put at risk all these other privacy rights recognized in the Constitution. And then the day after that, less known, the, Do the EPA case, West Virginia versus EPA, which clearly marked a, the beginning of a project of curbing the ability of government to act to protect, in that case, uh, the environment uh, and, other, and other ways it would involve itself in the economy and in the country. These six justices crammed decades of social change into three days. And I wanted to understand how that happened, why that happened, how the Supreme Court got to the position in our system that it has now, where we wait every June to find out what kind of country we live in, and especially what can we do about it. Thanks. And I think we'll dig in a little bit more to those specific cases in a, in a few minutes. But I guess I wanted to start out with some of the big themes that you hit on in the book. And one of them is that um, really both you know, conservative Supreme Courts over, you know, throughout our history and progressive Supreme Courts have really engaged in, in judicial activism, or what you sometimes call judicial maximalism. right? And, and you argue that it's really not good for the country when either side does it. Um, so, you know, could you explain a little bit more about why it's not really, it, it's not a great idea for us to look to the Supreme Court to sort of advance our democratic values? I mean, a, a premise that runs through the book and indeed through the work I do at the Brennan Center and so many other ways is that when, when it can be done, it is by far the best to have rights and notions of equality advanced by the democratically accountable system and branches of government, that our democracy and making our democracy robust and effective is, is, is for me, the ultimate goal of so much of this. It, it, the Supreme Court is a singular institution. It's nine, as you know, nine unelected government officials serving for life. The portion of the Constitution that deals with the federal courts is only one-tenth the length of the portion dealing with Congress and the presidency. The, more democratically accountable branches, which were assumed to be the, the, the more important branches. Um, it, is, it has attained the role it has in our society because we give it that power, we give it that, that role, because we trust it at some level to be above or beyond politics to a certain degree, to act like a court. And in fact, one of the things I learned in researching the history is most of the time in the country's history, the Supreme Court reflects the political consensus in the country. Um, it sort of hugs the middle. Um, but there have been a few times when the court has overreached, where it's been unusually activist or ideological or maybe even partisan, and there's always been a very fierce backlash, a very political backlash, which has helped shape the country. Uh, and uh, it, the book uh, looks at some of those. It starts, uh, for example, with the Dred Scott decision. Mm -hmm in 1857, which was the notorious ruling that said 
that uh, slavery could not be prohibited by Congress from the territories, that it was national, in other words, and that black people could not be citizens. The reaction was so intense, it led to the election of Abraham Lincoln as president, the rise of the Republican Party, and ultimately helped bring on the Civil War. Mm, yeah. And yet, you know, at the same time, it seems like there are moments when um, if the Supreme Court hadn't acted, you know, it really things that we think of as, as absolutely essential, you know, social change would not have happened. Like you can think of Brown v. Board of Education, right. you can think of one person, one vote, right? Reynolds v. Sims. So how do we kind of reconcile that? It, it, and you know, you can imagine this is something I wrestle with because as the Brennan Center, which I lead, is named after Justice William mm -hmm. Brennan, who was the great and esteemed ju liberal justice on the Warren Court uh, d during a, a, its most esteemed period of advancing rights, the only time actually in the country's history where it was sort of ahead of the country as opposed to where everyone else was or frankly reactionary. You know, most, so the second time where there was this overreach and backlash was at the beginning of the 20th century. It's the period the lawyers know as the Lochner era after an especially notorious case. That was a time of industrialization and great inequality and the judges on the court, the, the, the alitos of that court, thought their job was to make sure government couldn't do anything about it, that it could not protect uh, workers' rights, women's rights, safety, and things like that. Again, there was a tremendously fierce backlash. Teddy Roosevelt's 1912 presidential campaign, uh, which was this storied epic campaign where he was running against his hand-picked successor, Taft, uh, and Woodrow Wilson was the Democrat, and Eugene Debs was the fourth candidate, the socialist. Um, Teddy Roosevelt's big issue was taking on the Supreme Court and its, and its uh, extreme rulings. The Warren Court is an example in many of those cases, as you mentioned, where it is sometimes utterly necessary, indeed vital, for the court to step up and step in. Um, Brown versus Board of Education and the one person, one vote cases, both examples where the political system was broken, where the political system was frozen or had been captured. Uh, and it was necessary to come in and break the logjam. Um, segregation in the South, one of the things about Brown v. Board of Education is it was actually a very popular decision other than the white Southerners. The, but it was very supported in the rest of the country. Both the Truman and Eisenhower administrations argued for it. Um, the one person, one vote cases, which have echoes familiar to all of us thinking about things like redistricting now, uh, there was a tremendous imbalance for decades mm -hmm. in the legislatures and Congress in the country where rural interests basically had seized power and weren't giving it up. And this said, no, districts needed to be of equal size. Uh, the best argument for an activist court is when our democracy is broken and, and nobody else can do it. Um, the, the Warren Court, I s overwhelmingly support the outcomes of the decisions. I think they came so fast and furious and ultimately were in many instances somewhat unmoored from traditional constitutional principles, that they created their own backlash. Uh, and we're still living with that backlash today. Well, so that's interesting. I think that's, that kind of sets us up for what I want to transition to next, which is kind of where we are now, what happened in this you know, momentous uh, Supreme Court term, and kind of walk through each of these cases and, and what their significance is. Um, so we can start with Bruin, which is the first um, of the cases that you focus on. Um, it was the first gun rights case that the Supreme Court heard in over a decade, right? After recognizing an individual right to bear arms in Heller in 2008 and then extending that to the states, 
you know, lower courts, as you explained, were deciding these cases and had kind of come to a way of analyzing gun restrictions, but with no guidance from the Supreme Court. So then the Supreme Court weighs in, um, wades into the fray again in Bruin and, and um, gave some much needed, well, at least it was at a moment when there was much needed guidance, right? How did it do it, giving that guidance? So you're, you're exactly right. And the story of how the Supreme Court treats the Second Amendment is a real example of how constitutional change actually happens in this country. Um, as many of you probably know, but, it, but which is endlessly a shock to many people, especially younger people, the Supreme Court did not say that the Second Amendment reflected an individual right to gun ownership for self-protection until 2008. That's really recent. Previously, it had said otherwise. It was all about the militia. What happened? Well, there was a multi-decade constitutional campaign by the NRA and other gun rights advocates to change how the court saw the Second Amendment. They started with scholarship. They actually paid for a lot of scholarship, some of it good, some of it kind of made up. Um, they got, as you know, very involved in politics. They moved public opinion so that by the time this case came down and only at the very end did they go to court, it felt like a ripe apple from a tree. It seemed, well, obviously, that's what the Second Amendment means. Um, the Heller case said it was an individual right, but it also allowed for strong gun laws. Uh, Justice Antonin Scalia wrote the Heller case. Um, and I was very critical of the case in, in a book on the, on the Second Amendment uh, and its history, but uh, Justice Scalia wrote the, the Heller case, and he was asked, what's the difference between you and Justice Thomas? And he said, well, I am an originalist, but I am not a nut. <laughs> <laughs> Justice Thomas wrote the Bruin decision. And what the Bruin decision said, you're exactly right, there was a well-formed consensus by hundreds of courts all over the country saying, yes, it's an individual right, but you can still have strong gun laws. You have to basically balance the right against that public need, as we do with so many other constitutional rights. This court, in the opinion written by Justice Thomas, said, no, that's the wrong way to do it. The question is, what was history and tradition? You cannot, in effect, consider public safety needs today. You have to ask, what is history and tradition? And in this case, they said that means laws from the colonial era. You have to find an analogous law from the colonial era. Now, that sounds absurd, and it sounds like a parody, but it really isn't. Uh, a judge in upstate New York, a federal judge, assessing um, the, uh, a new law passed what the law that, that was struck down in that case was a law from 1911 that said you can't carry a gun in New York City, especially. Um, so to me, that's kind of history and tradition. That wasn't last week. Um, but th they said that misunderstood the, the Second Amendment. A judge in upstate New York looked at the new law that the legislature there had passed to try to reconstitute the gun laws. And he said, well, history and tradition Two examples from the founding era, that's a mere trend. For it to be a tradition, you need three. And I can find no tradition of laws prohibiting guns at sleepaway summer camps from the founding era. Therefore, that's unconstitutional. Let alone, by the way, subways, which would not be invented for 100 years. It sounds like a parody, but those, you're actually seeing rulings like this knocking down dozens or threatening dozens of gun laws all over the country. There's a ruling that uh, is particularly, I think, controversial along these lines from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in Texas, which is the very conservative federal appeals court. It's called the Rahimi case. 
they said, well, uh, a, a long-standing law saying that somebody with an adjudicated record of domestic violence, you can't take their gun away because back in the old days, that wasn't seen as such a bad thing. So that's unconstitutional. The court actually took this case. I have a feeling they may try to pull it back because it's such a horrible and, in my view, indefensible ruling. Right. But, it, but it has got a, a twisted logic coming out of the Bruin case. Right, right. That's, that's going to be the next one, I guess. Um, there was also that case out of Mississippi where the judge said, you know, should we have a, an, a historian as a special you know, expert in this case to tell us, right? It's just... It's, that's where we are, right? It, it can be somewhat terrifying watching, you know, we all, sometimes we all joke, you know, I went to law school because they told me there's no math. Watching, <laughs> uh, watching these judges try to derive things from some kind of um, precise notion of what they think history was yeah. is only a little bit less scary. Yes. So I think that's a perfect lead into Dobbs, actually. Um, so so many things we could we could say about Dobbs, and, and um, you have a really um, fascinating chapter. And and um, but you know because of where we are here in Cleveland, I want to call out one specific uh, point, which is the the sort of relationship between attacks on democracy and attacks on abortion rights in the wake of Dobbs, which of course returned abortion policy to the states to decide, right? And and Ohio is in some ways really ground zero right now as we both have a ballot um, uh, initiative um, or an initiative on the ballot in November to probably to put abortion rights into the Constitution as well as one in August to try to make it harder to do that, right? And, and I know you know about that. So uh, is this something we're kind of seeing across the country? Is it sort of an inevitable result of, of the Dobbs decision, do you think? Well, you're exactly right that rather than creating certainty and stability, uh, this has thrown the issue uh, into the states and into the political process and created turmoil and where you have uh, something deemed a fundamental right in one state and a felony in the state next door. Um, and we're seeing this play out over and over. One of the things that has happened, uh, we, as you say, Justice Alito said, well, we're, we're, this is, this is, uh, we're giving this to the voice of the people and the democratically accountable systems. The problem with that, among other things, is that um, the, the, the systems are not working very well in the states. The states already, with the harshest abortion laws, are the most gerrymandered states in the country and the states that have the most severe restrictions on voting. In many states, uh, laws were, it's not like there was some big current debate. There were laws that were long defunct on the books going back decades that suddenly sprang back into action to ban abortion. Um, and in a place like Ohio, one of the things that has happened, and I, it, as I describe this pattern of overreach and backlash, I emphatically think we are in another moment of backlash today. In the last election, um, opposition to the Dobbs case, along with concerns over democracy, led the Democrats to win the biggest victory for a party in control of the White House, the best result for a party in control of the White House in decades. But there were also notably ballot initiatives all over the country that have protected or advanced reproductive rights, including in very conservative states. Now, as you all know, Ohio has the chance to enshrine reproductive rights in the state constitution. But just as I mentioned that the democratic systems are constricted in those states um, that, uh, where, where these laws already are, 
folks here, some folks here in Ohio felt the laws were not constricted enough. This mm -hmm. effort to uh, reduce the ability of the people to speak through ballot initiatives is rather, um, is rather uh, naked in its purpose. So I think what we're seeing here is a bit of a microcosm for the whole country mm -hmm. um, and a dynamic we see playing out in a lot of places. But the, the public is strongly in opposition to the Dobbs decision and its implications mm -hmm. and is showing it every chance it can. We will find out whether you're right about that in Ohio very soon, so yeah. Um, so finally, I just want um, to give you a chance to talk a little bit about West Virginia v. EPA, which, as you noted, has kind of gotten less attention, but is really significant in terms of its sort of deregulatory implications and it also very atextual um, sort of turn to this major questions doctrine. So maybe you could say a little bit about why you included that case and, and what was so significant. Yeah, that case was, was a really big deal, and you're right, it came the day after Dobbs and was more arcane in its, in its nature, but it will, ha will have very significant implications and is already having very significant implications going forward. Um, this, this whole thing goes back in a way to 1937. Uh, I, I mentioned that for much of the early 20th century, the Supreme Court thought its job was to make sure government could not regulate the economy. They said it violated freedom of contract to limit the number of hours that bakery workers could work, for example. And when Franklin Roosevelt had his fight with the Supreme Court as they were striking down the New Deal and about to strike down laws like Social Security or the labor laws, Roosevelt uh, proposed expanding the court. It was the court packing fight. He lost the fight, but the Supreme Court backed down. Uh, they called it, as some of you know, the switch in time that saved nine to keep it at nine justices. Um, and what they did was say, if a regulation is reasonable, we're not going to try to police it with our own political views. There are some that enabled us, in my view, to build a modern country, to build a modern government, to become the great country we've become. Some people think it was a grave mistake. Uh, they call it the Constitution in exile. And they pine for a time when the Supreme Court, the conservative justices on, on, on a Supreme Court, would find a constitutional way or a, a doctrinal way to curb the ability of regulatory agencies to protect the environment, to protect health, uh, in any way to kind of impinge on the, the role of business uh, in a way it doesn't like. That was what this case was the real beginning of. It was a, a case involving a, 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 uh, an EPA regulation on climate change. It was kind of a big mess because the regulation had never gone into effect. But they unveiled a new doctrine that had never been articulated before called the Major Questions Doctrine, which said they claimed to be textualists, which, as you know, is the idea that, well, we're only going to look at what the words are on the page of a statute. We're not going to really look to see what Congress intended. We're just going to look at the words on the page. That way, we're going to be more precise. They said, well, it's true that in this law did actually seem to give the EPA the power to do this thing on power plants and the, for, on climate change. But it is a major question. And so EPA really still can't do it. Only Congress could do something like that. Um, they didn't really say what a major question was. But what it seems to mean is, first of all, that if something is a big enough deal to require immediate action by a regulatory agency, then it can't do it. <laughs> but what it really means, and we've seen this play out over the past year, is these judges, these very conservative judges, these judges backed by and vetted by the Federalist Society and other similar activist organizations, these judges will decide which regulations are major questions and block them. It is an enormous power grab by the judiciary 
over the entire system. And uh, th we saw it in a number of other cases, the case involving the student loan, uh, President Biden's student loan moratorium. They threw the major questions doctrine into that, and they just took a case for next term involving something called the Chevron Doctrine, which uh, gives regulatory agencies the ability to interpret uh, unclear federal statutes. And again, this has been a major target for libertarians and business interests for a while, and it looks like they're going to the, ring the gong on that one. <laughs> right. Right, so that, and you did mention um, the, the student loan case from this term. I mean, this term, too, was quite a, uh, you know, quite a humdinger um, in many ways. And so I just wanted to give you a, a few minutes to just sort of see if you had any observations you wanted to share about what, what this term can tell us about the Supreme Court. Only by the standards of last term did this term look like a moderate term, <laughs> um, from, from my perspective. Um, there were a few cases that were, um, pleasant, from my view, pleasant surprises. Um, in particular, uh, the, the court, with Chief Justice Roberts writing for the majority, um, continued the use of the Voting Rights Act, that great civil rights statute, to police uh, racial gerrymandering and racial discrimination in legislative maps. This was a big surprise. The only reason it was a surprise is that Roberts had had a career-long passion to destroy the Voting Rights Act including especially this particular provision. Uh, before this current supermajority, he was by no means a moderate on the issue of democracy. He has been deeply involved in knocking down voting uh, laws, knocking down campaign finance laws, refusing to police partisan gerrymandering, and more. Um, there was another case that the Brennan Center was very involved in that was not quite as much of a surprise, but I'm very glad it came out the way it did. That was the Moore versus Harper the, the notion that um, the Constitution had given state legislatures the exclusive power to set federal election rules with no checks and balances from state constitutions or state courts or governors or the people, and that nobody had ever noticed it up until now. Um, this would have been an absolute catastrophe. Uh, and they again ruled against it. And these were good rulings, but they should never have even taken these cases. Um, there were some other rulings that were encouraging in different ways, upholding the Indian Child Welfare Act um, and other things. But in some of the most significant rulings, especially at the very end, this court, again, upended major parts of American life and American society. The rulings on um, affirmative action uh, undid the, uh, the admissions policies of every institution of higher education in the country. Um, we see how it is already being used and weaponized and ringing loudly uh, as people are sending threatening letters to corporations saying if you're trying to have diversity in your workforce, you're violating the law. Um, it is an effort to really, in my view, roll back the clock um, in an egregious way on a significant social goal. It comes, again, when you think about what, we're, what has this court done in the last two years? Guns, abortion, the interests of the fossil fuel industry, affirmative action. That doesn't sound like a court. That sounds like a political caucus. And these are very deeply political cases uh, from a heavily political institution. Yeah, yeah. well, so on that note, and kind of before we, we transition to uh, the questions from the audience, I want to ask one last question, but kind of a big one, <laughs> which is, you know, what can be done and what can be done both, you know, in the sense of Supreme Court reform, which you have, uh, you know, a, a large chapter on in the book, but also 
just kind of how do we, you know, given how our sort of democratic muscles have atrophied, right, through this process that you've described, um, this sort of power grab by the Supreme Court, how do we rebuild uh, that democratic muscle as well? It's a great question, and you're exactly right that there is something we can do about this. Uh, there are many things, in fact, that people who don't like what's happening on the Supreme Court can do something about it. First of all, there are reforms of the Supreme Court itself. Just yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Committee passed an ethics code. Uh, the Supreme Court is the only court in the country that does not have a binding ethics code. The notion's pretty simple. Nobody is so wise that they should be the judge in their own case. Um, and we've seen in the recent revelations about billionaires funding the lifestyle of Clarence Thomas and other things like that, but many other ways as well, that, um, th that they need an ethics code just the same as other government officials do. This, this can be done for sure by statute, as was advanced yesterday, but it could be done by the Supreme Court itself. Uh, the justices could, could impose a code of that kind. Um, and uh, this is a real blot on John Roberts's record. He wants to be seen as an institutionalist. He does seem to understand the importance of public trust in the Supreme Court. Public trust is collapsing, um, and this would be an answer. So one low-hanging fruit is an ethics code. Um, I also think term limits, an 18-year term, makes a lot of sense for Supreme Court justices. Nobody should have too much public power for too long. That's the basic premise. Um, George Washington taught us that when he resigned the presidency after two terms, um, when he could have kept going. Um, term limits, interestingly, are really popular. Across the political spectrum, they're really popular. Uh, I found this out when I was on the Supreme Court Commission. Now, the, um, this was a commission that met in 2021. These government commissions, you know, they're, they're often designed to make sure nothing happens. And we were actually instructed by President Biden at the outset not to reach conclusions. And, and we didn't. <laughs> you know, it's a, a government agency that works as intended, you know, finally. But, but it was, nevertheless, it was pretty interesting. We heard from dozens of public witnesses from left and right. And over and over again, some were for court expansion, others were against it, some were for ethics code, others were against it. Over and over again, they said, oh, but I'm for term limits, of course. The, the, John Roberts has been for term limits. It is not ideological. Um, I think it's an idea whose time has come. Now, it could certainly be done by a constitutional amendment. We at the Brennan Center also think it could be done, in effect, by statute, by requiring justices to become senior justices after 18 years, changing their role. Um, we also think there ought to be a, a regular appointment where each president gets to appoint somebody every two years. Hopefully that would drain some of the toxicity and partisanship out of the confirmation process. But anyway, I think this is an idea whose time has come. I'm under no illusions that if it actually starts to move, suddenly it'll become very controversial. But, but there really is a national consensus. So there's reform of the Supreme Court. There's other ways we can push back. If you don't like, for example, what the Supreme Court has done on the Voting Rights Act, Congress could pass the law tomorrow to fix it. And in fact, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and Freedom to Vote Act that came very close to enactment in the last Congress and were reintroduced last week. That's exactly what it would do. There's a long history of Congress or the voters passing laws to undo mistakes from the Supreme Court. There are even things like constitutional amendments. They seem impossible to do at a moment like this. How could you conceive of passing a constitutional amendment? 
they always seem really impossible until they're not impossible. When things get bad enough, suddenly you get a burst of them about every 50 years. Um, and we ought to look at that. But I think the most important thing is, is in our own thinking about the court. Um, they're government officials. They're not wizards, even though they wear robes. <laughs> they're not religious oracles divining the past. They're, they're government officials with a lot of power. And uh, especially for liberals, we need to disenthrall ourselves and fall out of love with the Supreme Court um, and not think that the Warren Court, whatever its mistakes may have been, this glorious era, it, that this thing from 50 years ago is, is going to happen again. It's not. And I think that if, if we res resume the muscle memory of understanding how to fight at ballot boxes, how to fight with ballot initiatives, but in, in elections, uh, that, is a, that is a step that is really important. And of course, conservatives have understood this for decades. They've made the courts, the Constitution, a central political issue. Democrats and liberals have thought, oh, this is too arcane, people don't care about it. Mm -hmm. Conservatives knew better. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, that, is, that was wonderful. Um, I think we are ready to now take some questions from the audience. We are about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club, and today we are joined by Michael Waldman, President and CEO of the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law, and author of The Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America. Moderating the conversation is Jesse Hill, Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Judge Ben C. Green, Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org or our live radio broadcast at 89.7 WKSU IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question for our speaker, please te uh, text it to, or sorry, if you'd like to text a question for our speaker, please text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. You can also tweet it at the City Club. And our staff will try our best to work it into the program. May we have our first question, please? Our first question is a text question. Um, we have a lot in the room, too. But we'll start with this text question. In these hyper-partisan times, extreme often means having views different than mine. And constitutionality is confused with whatever public opinion wants. Respectfully, would there still be a crisis if we had a 6-3 to three liberal supermajority on the court overturning precedent and supporting liberal ideas. Thank you. So I, I think it would be a mistake for liberals to pine for six liberal Alitos on the Supreme Court. Um, I think that uh, the Supreme Court should know its place in our system um, and that we should understand that at its very best, our system works best when society forms a consensus through the democratic process. Now, it's not always easy to do there are times, certainly, when we want the court to be what's called a, a counter-majoritarian institution when it needs to stand up for people's rights. But I don't think it would be a good idea to simply look for a, a mirror image of this activist, political, and extreme court on the other side. And I also don't think it's going to happen. So I, I, I think that uh, it, it should not just be, oh, I don't like these rulings. It is also the case, though, that when you take a step back there has not been a time I can remember where you have a ruling after ruling after ruling so at odds 
with the public's view on matters. The, the day the Bruin uh, gun control decision came out, there was a public poll from Gallup, I believe, that said that 8% of the country wanted gun laws significantly loosened that day. The, the rest either wanted them as they were or significantly strengthened. We see the backlash on the Dobbs case. There is a national consensus for abortion rights with some limits, but for, for strong abortion rights flying very much in the face of this and others. So I don't think it's inappropriate if, if this unelected institution is, we have a country that is changing and moving in one direction, and this court is veering sharply in another direction, that will, if nothing else, in my view, create a legitimacy crisis for the court, and we don't want to have a court with a legitimacy crisis. We want to have one that is properly situated in our system. Yes, uh, could you re review what the court has done on immigration so far, and uh, what topics concerning immigration might be addressed by it in the future? So, uh, you know, this court, meaning the court with these six justices in control, has not done so many rulings on immigration. Um, where, where in recent years, the issues around immigration especially have not revolved so much around the rights of immigrants or of asylum seekers, but around the power of the president to do what they want. Um, the Trump versus Hawaii case, for example, uh, gave a lot of power to a president to exclude people from other countries, even if it seemed to be based on religious uh, religious bigotry and in, in closing off uh, immigration from Muslim-majority countries, uh, as Trump tried to do. Um, so I think we can expect to see rulings on, on these matters. Um, we don't know where all of the new justices are, but I think that one thing that we can see is that while they are taking power away from the regulatory agencies, at the same time a lot of them are working to give power to the president. Um, uh, there's this notion of something called the unitary executive theory, which, uh, as we've read recently, should Donald Trump get elected president again, he aims to impose on the whole executive branch where independence is gone and power flows to the Oval Office. So I think we may see those kinds of rulings on immigration uh, above all else. Thank you very much for this discussion. It's very helpful. Um, my question has to do with um, resistance to the court by the right wing. You may be aware, I'm sure, that in Ohio, uh, the Republican legislature in the redistricting ignored the Ohio Supreme Court directive. And now I have just read uh, that Alabama is not going to uh, redraw lines. So it raises the whole issue of what happens then. Well, you're seeing this kind of thing play out all over the place in the sense that even before the Dobbs ruling, Texas had passed a law that clearly violated Roe v. Wade as a deliberate effort to flaunt what the Supreme Court had said, and the court let them do it. But there, this, I wouldn't even say it's a tennis match. It's more like a rugby scrum unfolding all across the country. But I'm glad you met, brought those two matters up. Um, one of the really important ways we can respond to the US Supreme Court is to understand that state courts are an independent source of protection for rights and uh, for political equality, a real bulwark for our freedoms. Um, and uh, 49 of the 50 state constitutions, for example, have stronger protections for voting rights than the US Constitution does. They just have not 
actually been upheld by the courts of the states. They've tended to follow whatever the federal courts have done. One thing that's happened in recent years, as the U.S. Supreme Court has said, we wash our hands of trying to police partisan gerrymandering, but don't worry, state courts can do it. Here in Ohio, uh, there is an extreme gerrymander of the legislature, as you may know, and the, uh, I should say, in full disclosure, the Brennan Center, which I lead, has been litigating this case, among others. We have an unbroken record of seven wins at the Ohio Supreme Court, but zero at the legislature, because the legislature has just ignored it over and over again. That's why it's so important that voters have the power to act on redistricting. Um, it's unacceptable for the legislature to simply ignore the state Supreme Court and its clear understanding of the Constitution, but voters have a remedy if they, it, depending on how, uh, how hard the legislature is trying to make it to pass a referendum on redistricting. Ballot initiatives setting up independent commissions all over the country have changed representation. You look next door in Michigan, um, a, a citizen ballot initiative done entirely by volunteers put in place a really strong bipartisan commission that has changed the state and is, uh, the elections are much more free and fair. So I think that just because a court rules doesn't mean it's over, whether it's a ruling that's liberal or a ruling that's conservative. Um, and I, th I, think that, uh, I think that the most important thing is that people look at what the opportunities are to exert their will and exert their voice and take it. Good afternoon. My name is Dolores McCollum. I'm a retired social studies uh, teacher from the Cleveland School District, but I want to assume that I'm back in the classroom and it is uh, September 2023. I've invited you to my class. I want to know what you would say to my students who are 17 years old approaching voting. They have seen what the Supreme Court has done. They see one political party that seems to be very mean-spirited, mean another one that seems to be clueless. What would, you, <laughs> what would you say to them to encourage them, like, why should I bother to vote? What, would you, what advice would you give to them on why they should vote and why they should be actively engaged? Look, it's a great question. I can only guess which parties you're talking about in these <laughs> um, instances. Um, uh, I think that um, Many people only can learn this through experience, but you may not care about politics, but politics cares about you. Um, you may not care about the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court cares about you and can make things better or worse for, for your life and your own rights and your own chances. Um, it, it feels, and to young people especially, it certainly understandably feels like things have, are worse than they've ever been or, or hurtling backwards. And, it's easy for me to say, look, things have been bad before and people fought back and made positive change and that there's been enormous positive change in many respects throughout the country's history. But there have also been times, uh, such as in the late 1800s, where things went backwards. Um, it's easy for me to say that, but for someone who, like your students who grew up under the, the administration of Donald Trump, that feels normal to them. Uh, and, and it's understandable that they would feel rebuked, in my view. But I think the thing to say is that, above all else, if young people participate and young people vote, that's new enough, important enough, and big enough, it can actually change the outcomes for their lives. But I think the other challenge is for those in politics who you know, talk about these things often in ways that don't seem to connect 
to the actual outcomes in people's lives, even in those of us who care about democracy, but treat it as a, a hygienic matter or, or a political science matter rather than determining people what happens in people's lives. I think that's on all of us. I don't know if that's a good enough answer, but it's as close as I can as I can come. In Israel, a very conservative administration is doing everything it can to strip the judiciary of its ability to find laws, quote, unconstitutional. You can't do that in Israel because they don't have a constitution, but uh, what parallels, if any, do you see between what's going on in Israel today with the, the executive versus the judiciary and what potentially we're facing in this country? So I, it's a great question. Um, and it's a, it, what's going on in Israel is a really, I think, a really important cautionary note for all of us who think about these issues and for all of us who think about reforms to the Supreme Court and how the public might react. Um, in Israel, the, what you have is a strong Supreme Court, although I would argue not as strong in the system as we have here, but nevertheless, a, a very strong Supreme Court. And there it's the Netanyahu administration that is trying to make radical changes in, in curbing the power of the court. And what you see is hundreds of thousands of people protesting every week in Tel Aviv. This is upending Israeli society. Um, I think that uh, it's encouraging in the sense that there is a yearning for an independent court. Um, for, for an unpoliticized court. When we look at reforms in the United States that might or might not make sense, I always tell my colleagues who are pushing for things that there is, uh, it's really important that when we propose changes that we understand that um, our changes need to look legitimate too. Even if people think the Supreme Court is illegitimate, the, the changes, the proposed reforms also need to look legitimate. FDR found this out. Uh, with the court packing fight. He was at the peak of his power. He had just won the biggest um, election victory in American history. He had 70% of the Senate in his party. And when he proposed court expansion, um, it broke up his, he lost, he broke up his coalition, basically ended the New Deal. Um, and so, uh, you know, as we, many people support court expansion as one of the, uh, one of the remedies. Court expansion is emphatic, adding justices, looking at the fact that, for example, Merrick Garland's nomination wasn't even considered by the Senate. Uh, certainly, court expansion is 100% constitutional, 100% legal. But there's a risk that people will perceive it to be, uh, first of all, there would be a ratcheting up where Democrats would add five justices, Republicans would add five justices, but also that there's, any reforms need to be seen as not undermining judicial independence, but promoting and advancing it. Yes, uh, Zach Paris. Um, I was going to talk about, isn't it time for the Congress to, which has the power to uh, affect the number of justices? And in its history, it has done that a number of times. Uh, it started as six, went ultimately as high as 10 during the Civil War, went back to nine after that. But it has the power, no question about it. And if things get bad enough, I think the Democrats and the, and the progressives in this country have to make a serious run at it. Maybe the 18-year term limit uh, can do it, but uh, I'd like to dig a little deeper into the possibility of 
of doing that. Otherwise, we're saddled with these uh, young, uh, mostly young uh, right-wing justices for uh, certainly the rest of my life, if not the lives of others in this room. Thank you. Thank you. And there's two really interesting things to note about the role the Supreme Court has today um, relating to that. One is just, this is not a partisan statement. This is an empirical statement. Um, as we look at the alignment of the court with the country, because we're all obviously quite familiar with the Merrick Garland situation, what, the rushing through of Amy Coney Barrett's nomination in, in the last days of Trump's presidency, um, and that sort of thing. Um, the country has had a Supreme Court the last time that a Democratic president appointed a majority of the Supreme Court was 1970. Democrats have won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. That is by far the longest winning streak for a political party in American history. But Republicans, as you know, appointed six of the nine justices. And actually, a majority of the court was appointed by a president who did not win the popular vote to enter office. Um, Bush later did win the popular vote, but not when he came in. Um, all of this at a time when, over oh, the past half century, control of the White House, for example, has been divided more or less evenly between the political parties. This one really blew my mind. The last time a Democratic president appointed a chief justice of the Supreme Court, this is a tribute question, 1946. So there's something where this just, the dice keep rolling in a certain direction. So this, this is, if we were looking at another country, and looking at this institution with this much power and that kind of imbalance, we would think that was a significant issue. Um, the, the other thing that has happened is, it's not just that it's conservatives or one party or another. The court has been captured by a faction of a faction. The role of the Federalist Society is unlike anything we've ever had in American history. It started as a, political as a student club for law students but it has grown into a very big, very well-oiled, very effective political machine. And it turns out very well-funded as well. Um, I, you know, running the Brennan Center, I always used to look at the Federalist Society and say, wow, they're pretty effective. And you know, they don't actually seem to have very much money. Well, it turns out that someone had given Leonard Leo a few years ago, the, the leader of the Federalist Society, for his network of organizations, $1.6 billion. So it turns out they did have some money uh, to run tens of millions of dollars of ads. Apparently, we just learned today to run a very expensive public relations campaign to burnish Clarence Thomas's reputation while he was a judge. They vet the judges at all levels of the judiciary. They gave Trump the names for who he could, very overtly, he was proud of this, who he could put on the Supreme Court. Um, it's, again, it's, it's, it's unlike anything we've ever had in our country's history. One of the consequences of all this is we assume, people tend to assume that to be on the Supreme Court, you have to be an appellate judge. That is highly, an, uh, eight of the nine are, are, had their pre pre previous job being a federal appeals court judge. That's also really unusual in American history. Um, people who are on the Supreme Court were people at the peak of their career. They were former presidents, like William Howard Taft, former governors, like Earl Warren or Charles Evans Hughes, secretaries of state, attorneys general, senators, people like that 
who were public figures, and it actually helped them in their jurisprudence. Almost nobody on the Supreme Court today had ever been heard of by anybody before they were given this untrammeled, extraordinary power over our society. That leads to rulings that are more ideological, more impenetrable, and more enthralled to these doctrines and, uh, like originalism that don't make a ton of sense in the real world. So uh, Andrew Jackson supposedly said to John Marshall, you made the law, now, now you enforce it. And there is, I gather, a, uh, a movement, a letter from Harvard, somebody at Harvard, that uh, uh, saying, you know, that's what President Biden should do. You know, if he thinks the, if he thinks the Supreme Court's ruling is sufficiently egregious, he should just ignore it. Constitutional populism, they're calling it. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think we should view that as the goal. <laughs> um, but uh, we've seen this, this, again, this has unfolded in a lot of ways across the political spectrum, starting, or not starting, very visibly in the law called SB 8, uh, where in the years before the Dobbs ruling, state legislatures all over the country were passing illegal laws uh, to, flaunt, uh, to flaunt the fact that they were violating what the Supreme Court had said the Constitution was and to create a conflict. Um, I, I think that we want presidents to follow the law, <laughs> but I think that if the court is so extreme that it creates a constitutional and legitimacy crisis, you'll see more calls of, of that nature. And I do want to mention one more thing, going back to what I said about originalism. Um, this is one of the other new things here. The idea that history and tradition is the only way to understand the Constitution, that the only way we properly should understand the Constitution is what it meant to the people who ratified it at the time, is brand new. It has not been the doctrine governing the Supreme Court of the United States until last year, basically. Um, and uh, it is, first of all, it's to me absurd in many different ways. Um, it assumes you can know what history means. Uh, people argue about history all the time. The founders argued among themselves all the time. They fought duels. <laughs> they, and they weren't originalists. And right? they weren't originalists. <laughs> they deliberately kept things vague because they understood it was going to be a changing, growing country. Um, one of my favorites is James Madison. We all talk about the Federalist Number 10 because that was said, oh, the whole goal here is to not have political parties and to not have factions. He wrote it, as you know, as a pseudonym. Well, then two years later, he formed a political party the Democrats, and so then he started writing essays under a different pseudonym saying, some people say factions are bad. They don't know anything, you know? And that we're supposed to understand how we govern our country today based on what they did then. But even more, it is just, a, to me, a frankly reactionary way of looking at things. The idea that we need to govern our country, our changing, diverse, and growing country in 2023 by the social views of property-owning white men from the 1700s, a time when women could not vote or, uh, in most instances, own property, when black people were enslaved, and on and on. It's frankly absurd, but that is the actual turning back of the clock reflected in, in this approach. In, in Great Britain, when the, someone proposes a law, uh, a rule or something on guns or something like that, they don't say, oh, that's a really interesting idea. What did King George III think? Because that's how we're going to decide today. It, 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 it's not how the Supreme Court has ever ruled before, and it, it is uh, not a workable way to run a modern country, in my view.
Thank you, Michael and Jesse, for joining us today at the City Club. Today's forum is part of City Club's author, Authors in Conversation series in partnership with Cuyahoga Arts and Culture and the Cuyahoga County Public Library. The City Club is grateful for your continued support. Also, a special thank you to Jeremy Paris for his partnership on today's forum. And we would like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by the American Constitution Society, Case Western Reserve University School of Law, the Cleveland Clinic, the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association, Squire Patton Boggs, and the Legal Aid Society of Cleveland. Thank you all for being here today. Next week on Wednesday, July 26th, Rick Jackson, former Sound of Ideas host with Ideastream Public Media, will be here to host a discussion on State Issue 1, the subject of Ohio's uh, August 8th special election. Former Governor Richard Celeste and former Attorney General of Ohio Betty Montgomery will join the panel in opposition of the issue. Joining in support of State Issue 1 is Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose and State Representative Susan Manchester. Tickets are still available. And then on Friday, July 28th, the City Club will host our final forum here at 850 Euclid before our big move to Playhouse Square. Uh, Dr. Jag Singh of Harvard Medical School will discuss his new book, Future Care, Sensors, Artificial Intelligence, and the Reinvention of Medicine. Be sure to join us after the forum for a celebra celebratory toast to our four decades here at the corner of East 9th in Euclid. You can purchase tickets to these forums and learn more about our other upcoming forums, including our Playhouse Square series in August at cityclub.org. Thank you once again to Jesse and Michael. Thank you, members and friends of the City Club. And of course, best of luck to the US Women's National Team as they prepare for their first game of the World Cup. I'm Cynthia Connolly. Enjoy your weekend. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.